Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty, the Pequot War. In the end, after all of William's arguments, it was revenge that had best resonated with the Narragansett. The Narragansett would not form a native coalition. They would join the English in conquering their generational foe. A few weeks later, the Bay received Sachem Myantinomi with honors in Boston. They agreed to a seldom league against the Pequot. Williams didn't participate in the ceremony because he was still banished from Massachusetts Bay. Though Sachem Myantinomi required that Williams be sent a copy of the league's agreement to review before signatures were added. The Pequot had started their guerrilla warfare campaign in the far west of New England, where Thomas Hooker's settlement of Hartford was exposed. In response, Hooker sought out his own native allies, and he found one in Uncas, the sachem of the Mohicans. The Mohicans were a native nation within the Pequot Confederation. Sachem Uncas had recently tried to become sachem of all of the Pequot, but he had lost on that title to his brother-in-law, Sassicus. Driven by his ambition of his own empire, Sachem Uncas now plotted with the Connecticut English to build that empire. He would get his own native confederacy, even if it meant the death of his own relatives in the Pequot nation. Sachem Uncas would fall upon the Pequot sieging Saybrook Fort. After routing the Pequot with his surprise attack, all of the parties involved in this war would be forced to hunker down for the duration of the harsh New England winter. War I want you to picture what you have in mind, maybe World War II movie with large armies sieging Omaha Beach, or the opening scene in Gladiator with large Roman armies clashing with the Gauls. Large-scale set-piece warfare is what we generally have in mind, one army against another. But when we're talking the colonial New England era, it's more like large-scale paintball battles. Many of these skirmishes, and I... I use this term deliberately to denote the smaller scale of this, were a hundred warriors attacking a village of maybe 50 people. The English defenders all huddled up in a single building that they had reinforced and stockpiled with food. Or maybe a dozen warriors jumping five or six people traveling on a road. This was a war of skirmishes, but the English insisted on moving their forces around in large numbers, sacking empty village after empty village but being continually frustrated that they could not get the decisive set-piece battle with the Pequot that they sought. And war then, like now, allows the unscrupulous to take the war as political cover for their actions. In Wethersfield, Connecticut, land-hungry English attacked and removed a nearby nation from their lands. This nation had no involvement with the Pequot War. A Connecticut court would later rule that this was blatant thievery and ordered the English involved to compensate the natives for the damages in the land that they seized. But the damage had already been done to that society. They had been pushed off their land, and monetary payouts for damages could never truly restore the harm that was inflicted. And while the court ruling was years off, this nation would have to figure out what to do about being forcibly pushed off their land, so they sought help from the Pequot nation. The Pequots retaliated by attacking the town of Wethersfield, killing nine and taking two girls as slaves. This pulled the broader Connecticut English into the Pequot War, many of which had tried to stay neutral from this war. But from their view now, the Pequot were indiscriminately attacking the English. And this pulled the whole region into a war that everyone but the Bay had preferred to stay out of. The Connecticut English raised a small army under the command of John Mason, with John Underhill serving as his lieutenant. 
they were sent to secure Saybrook Fort, which had been retaken by the Pequot. The Pequots far outnumbered the English in the Saybrook region. The Pequot had guns and guarded all of the river crossings. Something we don't think about today is the strategic importance of fords along rivers. A ford is a location on a river that you can walk safely across to maybe waist-deep or ankle-deep water. So Mason, whose 500-man force was sailing to the Connecticut coast, fainted the Pequot scouts. Seeing their strength, he sailed away, then circled back and landed 30 miles to the east, where he was joined by another 500 Narragansett warriors. They made the two-day overland march, led by their Narragansett allies, who scouted through the dense terrain. On the last night, their camp was so close, they could hear the singing of the Pequot warriors late into that night. And in the morning, they launched their surprise attack from the opposite direction as expected on Saybrook Fort. Mason and Underhill were veterans of European religious wars. And the Pequot would soon learn the existential threat these men posed to them. The two forces would meet in this large-scale battle. Mason would report back of this battle that most courageously the Pequot behaved themselves. I always enjoy the English compliment that has an undertone of implied insult, as if they weren't supposed to behave themselves. As the fight went on, Mason could see the tenacious resistance of the Pequot, who even though surprised, had the defense of the captured English fort as their advantage. European war, though, is brutal, total war. Winner take all. Ends justify the means. There really is no way to describe this other than that. Mason would position his forces in a defensive circle, trapping and sieging the fort. Then he would set the fort ablaze. This fort held both the warriors that were engaged in the battle and the wigwams, which were filled with the women and children. The English would maintain their defensive position and shoot anyone fleeing the fort. Mason and Underhill might have been hardened veterans to this type of slaughter, desensitized to the plight of these people. But the New England farmer militia and the Narragansett warriors? This was a sight, smell, and sound they would never forget. Natives in general, including the Pequot and the Narragansett, fought wars of power position and hierarchy over each other. When you lived in a land where the settlements were miles apart, it didn't serve you to slaughter your adversary. Native wars were most often about paying tribute and submission to each other. Gaining empty, untamed lands wasn't important into native culture. Losing nations would send you tribute, increasing your resources, and be obliged to fight in your wars as your vassal. The Pequot and the Narragansett nations functioned in hierarchies even within their own confederacies. One sachem ruled over whole confederacy of all the other sachems underneath him. These were complex society developed over centuries. Their cultures desiring to have tributaries through war, not necessarily the land. Europe had large amounts of excess population who wanted to do the hard work of taming rugged lands. Europe also had high stakes Europe also had a culture of high-stakes religious war, where zeal and righteousness created an environment where it was culturally acceptable to just simply make room for your people. Your people that pray to the right God in the right way. More civilian Pequot would die in this fire than warriors on the battlefield. Mason would pray to God after the battle, giving thanks for the enclosement so that they could envelop the enemy within it so they could have such a speedy victory against such a proud and insolent enemy. This lack of quarter shocked the Narragansett, who cried out to Mason that the fire was too furious and slays indiscriminately. Of the estimated 700 Pequot in the fort that day, seven were taken prisoner and maybe seven escaped. 
This battle was not some great strategic defeat for the Pequot. It was only 700 of an estimated 20,000 population. But this battle inflicted psychological victory over the Pequot. English ferocity in war was terrifying to the natives. And this ferocity continued throughout the war. Europeans were unrelenting and ruthless in warfare. When nations of the Pequot started surrendering on the battlefield, the English slaughtered all of the potential warriors, then turned to the remaining women and children, sold them as slaves, and shipped them off to Barbados, never to be heard from again in North America. A few slaves were kept in New England. Winthrop personally kept Momomoto as his slave, and her children as indentured servants until adulthood. Momomoto was said to have saved the lives of the two girls captured in Wethersfield. This favor of serving Winthrop instead of being shipped to Barbados was bestowed upon her in return for that kindness. Within months, the Pequot Confederacy was decimated, and its society deconstructed as the spoils of war and right of the victors. The Pequot's sachem Sassacus was now on the run, seeking refuge in one and then another nation that had once been a part of the Pequot Confederacy. And those nations, once his subjects started to refuse him out of fear of what the English retribution would be if they dared to give him harbor. Finally, Sassacus fled to the Mohawks. Finally, Sassacus fled to the Mohawks, one of the more warlike nations of the region whose lands were well outside of English jurisdictional control. The Mohawks killed Sassacus on sight and sent his scalp to Hartford. They had no interest in the Pequot's losing war. Most surviving nations, once a part of the Pequot, divided into either the Mohicans or the Narragansett Confederacies. The Mohican sachem Uncas had commanded a few dozen warriors before the Pequot War started. But with his political maneuvering, it allowed him to now command hundreds of warriors after the war. And because of his English support, he became one of the most powerful sachems in the region. The Bay had wanted this war. Crushing the Pequot had made clear to the Dutch the English's claim to the Connecticut borderlands between them. And it made clear to all natives in New England the military superiority of the Bay. And it made Uncas of the Mohicans the preferred client state of the Bay. In short order after the war, the Bay reneged on its pre-war promises to the Narragansett of Pequot hunting grounds, land claims, and other rewards of conquest. Instead, they gave much of these spoils to the Mohicans. The rivalry between the Narragansett and the Pequot was stomped out. But rivalry between Uncas and the Narragansett was born. Remember, Uncas was the brother-in-law of the old Pequot sachem. Uncas had not only taken much of the remaining Pequot under his banner, he now was the preferred ally of the English. Uncas won the peace after the war. Through this war, the Bay earned themselves peace from the outside threats they feared. But the resolution of the external threat just meant that the internal war of Puritan doctrine could get back to order. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again. And until next time.